Ramble. Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. What's up? Welcome back to the show. I'm Josh Peck. You are the listener, and this is the Curious Podcast with me, Josh Peck. I'm that guy. Um, hope you all had an incredible weekend and are having an incredible week. I just got back from like a long ass business trip. Um, I was doing something for Bank of America in Pennsylvania, a social media activation, uh, which was actually a really good time because it was held at like a sleepaway camp, which I haven't been to since I was nine and went home from um, early as in like 27 days early from a 30 day planned sleepaway trip because I was homesick and I miss my mom and I realized quickly that I was going to be in a tent with six other boys and what I deemed to be an unfit counselor and thought better of it and decided that it would be best if I started crying uncontrollably so that the the camp staff and administrators would quickly put me on the phone with my mom and I knew that I had her just wrapped around my chubby little finger and that she would, you know, lickety split be in Connecticut the next day to, to come pick me up. And she was there and I went home and it was pro- she probably didn't get her money back from the camp. But you know what? I'm over it and I hope that she is too. But yeah, it was a good trip. I, um, I was in Pennsylvania for that. Then I went and spoke at Bucknell University in Lewisburg, PA. Great kids. 1,200 kids came to watch me talk about shit and try to make them laugh, sort of, maybe. No, it was good. I've done, you know, I've done like 10 of these um, college gigs over the last year, and, and I always have a really nice time, and it's cool to see the uh, the turnout and the effect and, and to sort of have that college experience, if if not more than for an hour or two, because I didn't get that. And I think it's sort of charming and attractive. Um, And I wonder, you know, I think about that I have a kid on the way and that, like, I really can't wait for my kid to have that experience of, you know, just being at a college and making friends and living in dorms in a bunk bed, preferably with like one of those bunk beds where the desk is under it, you know, so they're like doing their homework in this little like hutch built-in rooms plus Ashley furniture sort of loft bed thing that you can only really own till you're like in your mid-20s because if you have one of those after that it's just weird it's just infantile that you sleep higher than three feet off the floor um but yeah I can't wait for my my kid to sort of have that experience and I hope they're smart and do well in academics because I was not that way um, but I would be sad. I would be sad to see them uh, so far away from me. I was looking at those kids and I had a very dad moment of like, God, like your parents must miss you. Or too many, some of your parents suck, I'm sure, and don't miss you. They're just happy to, you know, be in their own routine doing their thing. But I'm sure the majority, a good amount, miss you guys, you know? And I'm sure they live all over the country and they're hoping that you're not drinking too much and making complete fools out of yourselves, which I'm sure most of them are. But um, no, they were smart kids, smart kids, nice kids. It's a good time. I like the college gigs. It's nice. It's, it's a new thing for me. Um, What's going on in the news? Kavanaugh, he's on the Supreme Court. I don't want to politicize this podcast because I'm not the one. 
I think if I have any sort of good quality, it's my awareness of which that my opinion is probably not the best to voice and things of this matter and that people like, I don't know, Trevor Noah or Bill Maher or John Oliver, Oliver are probably more fit to sort of expound on the things that I feel because I think we I probably share a political sensibility with all those guys because I look up to them. Well, you know, I like them. I don't know if I look up to them. I like them though. And but um yeah, it's been an interesting thing and we'll see what happens. But sure is democracy in action, isn't it? I mean, our elected officials confirmed this guy. You know what I mean? So I might not love it and people might not love it and some people like it. I don't know, but Inevitably, this is the system at work. If you want to change it, vote for it. Go out and vote. Do that shit because you can vote soon. I don't know when exactly. You know, I know I was about to sound like someone who really was responsible and cared about his civic duty. I, you know, I care enough to mention it here. And I hope that you all Google the exact date when it is our turn to vote. I believe it's sometime early November. Um, So best of luck. And then I watched the Conor McGregor uh, Khabib fight this weekend. Uh, UFC actually watched it with my big brother because I was in Florida for my nephew's bar mitzvah, which was a time. It's actually a good time. Um, and uh, I was with my brother watching it. And basically, if you don't follow it, there was a big lead up to this. And Conor, being the trash talking sort of uh, savant that he is, attacked just. Khabib on every level of his humanity and said all the things one should never say to another human being, um, even if it's all out of the desire to sell a fight and make um, unheard amounts of money um, in doing so. Um, But yeah, Conor Trash talked him good. Khabib took it to him in the ring, submitted him lickety-split, and uh, and then proceeded, once he won, to jump over the cage and start a small riot in the T-Mobile arena by going after Conor McGregor's trainers. And then some of Khabib's teammates went after Conor, and it was a whole fucking thing. And um, it was slightly wish fulfillment, I'm sure, for every fight fan, as I am one of them, where WWE and professional fighting merge to where it becomes just this like real spectacle Like, you know, it's one thing for it to happen in the ring, but then as soon as it starts happening outside the ring and you think like fucking Undertaker and John Cena are going to come back up Khabib in some hardcore match outside the ring and then, you know, Stone Cold and the Hardy Boys are going to run in and back up McGregor and it's just going to turn into like this crazy Royal Rumble UFC style and Joe Rogan's in the middle of it and then Joe Rogan gets hit with a chair and he's down and (laughs) I don't know. It was, uh, so in one way it was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is actually happening and then the adult in me uh, thought better of it and was like, this is really unacceptable and I think probably both these guys are to blame in some respect. And, uh, and I had that adult moment. I remember like after the initial excitement of, oh my God, he's over the cage. He's in the audience. Everyone's going nuts. Like I, then eight seconds later, I was like, oh, this is incredibly dangerous. <laughs> like I just, yeah, 
this was this was a bad idea. But it was exciting, but dangerous and just a bad bad idea. Glad no one got um, too hurt. But that you know that's what adults do. We worry about people getting hurt. We worry about ourselves getting hurt. I'm very I gingerly walk downstairs at this point. I'm very careful. You know, I feel like in your teens and your twenties, you don't give a shit. You're like, I don't care if I get bruised up, break a limb, whatever. I'm going to be just fine. I will recuperate in weeks. But now, fuck that. I'm like, people be like, yo, you want to play pickup basketball? I'm like, why don't you calm yourself there, brother? No, I don't because I like my ACLs. And I don't want to rip every tendon in my knee going for a fadeaway or like trying to fucking, I don't know, I don't know sports terms, but do some cool spin move and my knee leaves my body for a pickup basketball game that means nothing. We're not getting paid for this. You're an accountant. I'm an actor, kind of, and a podcaster, and a social media personality, and I need my knees. And I can't be, you know, trying to have my moment here on the court with you and put my body at risk. I have errands. I have important things to do. You know what I mean? And I don't know. It, you know, it's one thing growing up fat that fascinates me is because, like, I never had that competitive spirit, at least physically, because I just knew I couldn't compete. I just wasn't, I, I wasn't blessed in that way. And so I'll see guys who were probably once very athletic in high school or college, and then they get into their thirties and forties, and they play these pickup games of fucking flag football or, you know, five on five basketball into their thirties and forties, and they just go so hard. <laughs> And I just think it's gross and annoying. And I'm like, all right, well, don't be mad when you fucking, you know, uh, annihilate your rotator cuff when like that elbow that you're like throwing into people's ribs hurts you for the next 11 weeks and you're not sure why. It's because that pickup game that you made so important because you felt like you were reliving your youth at whatever, you know, high school you were at. Um it's because you were you went too hard because you cared too much about something that no one after a certain age recreational sports shouldn't just it shouldn't matter it just doesn't need to be this competitive you know what I mean I don't know it's a weird tangent um, what else yeah you know I've been fascinated by the infantilizing sort of nature of adults as of late because I feel like adults or at least the ones I'm coming in contact with are like all trying to relive their youth and I think it has to do a lot with like the um the the reboot nature and everything's being rebooted from our childhood or from our from our 20s because a I just think you know we're sort of out of good ideas but more so I just feel like everyone wants to feel what it was like when they were 16. I'm like, I can't tell you how many adults I know with annual passes to Disneyland. And listen, no tea, no shade, no lemonade. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not trying to hate on it, but I just find it weird to be like in your early 30s without a kid walking around downtown Disney. Forgive me. So sue me. I mean, no, it's a dope place. And this is no reflection on, you know, theme parks in general. I just, you know, or like adult summer camp or frickin... Yeah, or I just feel like a lot of people need to grow up. I'm a big fan of growing up. I like being a grown-up. I always wanted to be a grown-up as a kid. I actually thought the whole kid thing was like, I remember that parents and people would say, like, enjoy it now. It'll never be as easy as it is right now. I'm like, it's not so fucking easy, you know, Mr. Simmons. It's not so easy, even now at 16 or 12. 
And what sucks more right now is that I'm like powerless because I'm a child. And so I don't get to make decisions. But when I can, I think I'm going to feel a lot more secure about life and things. So I don't get the whole need to go back and relive childhoods and impose them on other people. Like Seinfeld has a great joke about childhoods or like the invention of our of our parents of like the 20s and on. Because before that, before the 1920s, nobody fucking had a childhood, right? I mean, they did, but not really. Because once you were of a certain age, you went and worked in your father's coat factory or your, you know, your grandmother's bakery, or you were like on a farm and you were a farmhand. Like, you know, when you were of a certain age and ability, you worked, God damn it. And like, I don't know. And then our parents or their parents, somebody had a childhood before us and they felt like it was something special and ultra idyllic. And so now we're just like trying to preserve that for our kids and god forbid they should taste any bit of the world and its ups and downs and challenges before the ripe old age of 20 or like 18 and beyond and so we're all trying to get back there but i'm not i'm not trying to get back to my childhood my childhood was what it was it was fine but i'm i'm happy to not revisit it man this is a long rant today sorry guess i had some shit to say um, today's episode has Josh Gad on it. Heard of him? Josh Gad. Oh, you know, just the voice of Olaf in Frozen. Um, also, Book of Mormon. Also, Mad Things. So many, so many things. Movies, television. Josh is incredibly talented, and he was one of those gets for the pod that I couldn't believe we got. Um, he and I were in a movie called The Wedding Ringer Together, directed by my friend Jeremy Gerlich, and he's hilarious in it. Um, it's him and Kevin Hart, and I got to play for a day on it. And um, as you'll hear in the pod, he was nice enough to do the pod on like, I don't know, a couple days notice. And uh, I just couldn't believe he said yes. So I felt really lucky. I'm such a big fan of Josh Gad. I feel like I come across a little bit um, giddy in this episode, but so be it, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a fan and I couldn't believe he said yes. And I really appreciate him. So anyway, enjoy Josh. It's your old pal, Josh Peck here. <laughs> <laughs> I, you are, you are the first Joshua, Josh, mm. that I am having on the show in addition to myself. Well, you couldn't get Groban? I bet I could get Groban. Yeah. Groban's gettable. Gro- I could call him right now. Do you want me to try him? Please. Okay, let's try That's him. That's an immediate yes. Okay, I'm going to try him right now. Let's see if we I can get wait. him on the phone. He's he's probably going to be like, why would you blindside me with this? <laughs> you have to call my agents before contacting me. Let's see. Let's see if maybe we just get his answer machine, but it's worth oh, it's so, worth a shot. Something tells me he didn't do his own outgoing message on his voicemail. Well, he didn't sing it, but I think he did it. <laughs> really? I do. We'll see. We'll see. Oh, this is very exciting. Do we need to get him to sign a waiver over the phone? <laughs> like, how does the technical legal of this work? Right. I hope so. I'm sure there's. What something... if he's he's always traveling? What if he's in like China right now and we're waking him up? Cute. Let's I... go through all the famous people in your phone. Okay. Next up, we're gonna try Emma Stone. No. Yeah. No. I can't handle no, this. We're not. Come we on. Probably won't. Yeah. Emma Stone. Uh, just no. See, I knew it. There's no it's outgoing really voicemail from And now Josh I'm going to get a return call, and he's going to be like, what's up? And I go, it's not 
urgent anymore because you didn't pick up when I needed you to. <laughs> right. And now you're just calling me and I'm in the middle of something. And You, you, know. you dropped the ball, Groban. You really did, Josh. <laughs> Speaking of Josh Groban, I'm, as I'm sure you know, Spielberg is doing West Side Story. <gasps> did you know that? I did know. Yes. It was actually really ironic because I went to the John Williams oh. uh, Hollywood Bowl concert. Mm. And they did... Uh, like a celebration of a hundred years of Leonard Bernstein, and so they were playing a lot of West Side Story, and I was like, "This is this has to be planned because Spielberg was also there, right?" So they're like gearing up for their next collab, and oh. yeah. Are you suggesting that I should audition for it? Well, I'm suggesting you should be straight offered it because you're Josh motherfucking Gad. But... Oh, maybe Officer Krupke. That's not terrible. Well, it kind of is, but I'll accept it. Terrible-ish. Yeah. It'd be terrible if it wasn't a Spielberg movie. But So I auditioned for it, or I put it on tape, uh -huh. just because I hate myself, and I like to do things that I have no shot at. And I sent my mom the audition, thinking, and you know, I can sing kind of, and thinking my Jewish mother's going to be like, I am so blown away what did she say? by your angelic tones, <laughs> <laughs> your dulcet pipes. She goes... It was really good for someone who's never trained. Oh. But they're probably going to give this to Josh Groban. Oh, no, mom. <laughs> and it was like this one-two punch of unintentional, complete honesty and truth. I'm like, of course they're going to give it to Josh Groban. But I love the fact that, like, she had to, like, to add insult to injury, it had to be another Josh that got it. Right. Like... And at least, like, make it, like, Josh Hartnett so it's like a, you know, like a return to form kind yes. of story. Where it's just like we're we're bringing Josh Hartnett back. Yeah, a beautiful, beautiful waspy Pearl Harbor lead. God, God. yeah, God. I, I, we don't see enough Josh Hartnett. We don't. Let's just stay on Josh's. This let's whole just <laughs> let's figure out as many Josh. Josh Molina, Josh Molina, Josh Josh Lawson. Mm. There's another Josh. Josh. Joshua Jackson. Joshua Jackson. Dawson's Joshua Creek. Tree. Joshua Tree. Yes, an incredible location. And an incredible U2 album. God. Serves two purposes. Um, this is the best. I'm this so happy is the to best. see you. I don't know what the theme of this podcast is, but this is this feels great. We're in. Like if the if the podcast is about attention deficit disorder, I feel like we're <laughs> winning covered that podcast all the bases. right now. <laughs> um, well, I just feel so honored that I threw a lob out and hit you up on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I, li I love Josh. And like... Maybe he'd reply. Yeah. Perhaps he would say yes to this. There was a good chance I was going to say no, too. Of, don't I know it? And, and that is my greatest fear and trepidation about this whole podcasting in general. And can I tell you that I've had very few no's. Really? Yeah. That's a surprise. I mean, I don't have, <laughs> I don't have an insane network, <laughs> but it's not bad. You're so charming. You're so. Who can say no to you? True. Should we, should we reach out to Tom Cruise together next and be like, look. I did it. It's harmless. Yes. Come on the show. Spread the word. Spread the love. It's a joy. Who doesn't want to go to Mid Wilshire on a Friday afternoon? I know. I don't. And had I known that that's where I was going to have to go, I probably would have said no. So it was smart of you to sort of hit me up first before you told me how far I needed to drive here. Fair. Yeah. But I have an yeah. answer to that, too, because I have a mobile kit, and I go ah. to people's places. And I'm gonna I'm gonna have a word with my assistant. <laughs> um, no, this is this is such a pleasure. You're so unbelievably talented, funny, wonderful, handsome, despite what your mother thinks. And Ugh, the, too you good know, to me. I love. Uh, we we did one thing together one time. Yeah, wedding ringer, and you just came in. 
with your nasty little self and stole that movie like oh, a, like please. a thief in shining armor. And uh, I've I've wanted to tell you how much I resented you for doing that ever since that day. Thank you, yeah. my prince. I, <laughs> you know, it's it's funny too, and it speaks to your affability and generosity as a performer because, as you know, like you and Kevin were the you know the the leads of this movie and. And the leads always set the tone. And I was just walking in as a day player. I'm in someone else's home. I'm like, is this a shoes on home or shoes off? Which is always like, so hard. Terrifying. It's terrifying. Yeah. And I remember, and it wasn't even on my coverage. It was The camera was on you guys. And it was sort of the first time I was doing this like silly speech <laughs> that I had to do. And I remember you genuinely laughing. I was blown away. And looking at me going like, yeah, do that. Like, yeah. that's good shit. And I was like, thank you. They're so funny. There's that those outtakes. I've never seen them, but I would love to revisit them because you just literally went on and on and on forever, and it <laughs> made me piss my pants. Well, thank because if you had like if I had done that and you had like sort of cocked your head or like had a small aside to Kevin, yeah, and then just been stone. Would have been deeply uncomfortable. I would have been like, I'm fucked. Yeah, I should have done that just to throw you off your game a little bit yeah, so that you, you wouldn't have. have stolen the movie from me. But I didn't think about it at the time. At the time, I'm like, I'm going to be generous. Are you, have, is that just an inherent thing or was that learned from other people you'd work with, just that magnanimous being the mayor of the set? I think it's just inherent. Like, I just can't – all joking aside, I literally can't imagine why somebody wouldn't be that. Like, it's so – having been on the other side of that – it's so off-putting to get on a set and have people just sort of like put up a wall yeah. and make you feel unwelcome just because it's it's really not going to benefit the, the environment. Certainly, I don't think it's going to benefit the project. So it's like, why wouldn't you make everyone welcome in your home? It just doesn't, doesn't ring as a thing to me. But you've obviously had experiences like that, right? Yes. Yes. And what do you think it's born out of my observation has been is is that it's just ego run riot where they feel threatened by anyone else who perhaps might be taking just the slightest bit of spotlight. I found that it's it's particularly uh resonant on uh if you come in and do a TV series that's been on for quite some time because that crew, that group it's so secondhand for them, and they've been, that that really is their house. That you're like coming in, and and there's times when they are so embracing, and they're so wonderfully, um, you know, ensemble oriented. And there are times when they really are just like, come in, do your thing, get out. We want to get home before eight. You oh, know, yeah. like there's a lot of that, uh, which I get. Like I do get it, um, but. I don't know if it's like being jaded or just being over it. It's it's weird. But is there – like I've experienced on certain things. I remember I did this show. When do we start recording, by the way? <laughs> Eventually. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into it slowly. Great. I'm but excited. Uh, no, we're live, baby. <laughs> We've been live. <laughs> this is happening. Let's go back. Yeah. Let's go back to early Gad. Mm. Um is your your dad's an Afghani Jewish immigrant? That is that is all those things are true. Wow, I'm gonna what's get that like, like? I'm gonna get like fifty two death threats. Tell me everything, because uh, I feel like being Jewish in like Ohio would be hard, but Afghanistan, right? No, he grew up in Afghanistan. He he left when he was about thirteen years old. Um, I think at the time it was like 
sort of cool to like be like a, a Jew in Afghanistan and then like around when he turned 13 it was sort of not cool anymore um, so he was like peace out he and his family yeah uh, and yeah and they just sort of like moved on out and did he I mean obviously 13 that's like he had memories experiences and did he miss it I don't think so. No, he's, he's <laughs> like, happy it's like to get out. You know what I miss? Mountains and goats. <laughs> right. Like nobody's ever like, I really miss, because he was like, he literally grew up like by like a goat farm. It was like weird. Like, yeah. God, yeah. I miss well water. <laughs> <laughs> I miss fresh well water. <laughs> yeah. But you know, by all accounts, Afghanistan was and maybe still is beautiful land. Like yeah. it just breathtakingly beautiful land. Um, and I think just over the years, it's some of your neighbors suck, but that's unfortunate, <laughs> unfortunate what's happened over there. Yeah. And so, and he landed in Florida. No, <laughs> no. Uh, my parents, well, my parents are now divorced. I, I don't actually speak to my dad very much, uh, which is a side story, but it's, you know, they met in New York and then, um, from there, I, they just got married and started, this whole project called Josh Gad. Wow. And here I am. Look at you. Well, they said at the time, I remember they're like, do you think there will be something called a podcast in the future? And do you think it's worth creating a person who can be on one? Mm. And I think that mutually they came to the decision. Yes. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great plan. This was a beautiful convergence yeah. of thoughts. And then when they knew it was going to all be good, they were like, I think it's time to separate. <laughs> <laughs> I think that... Yeah, well, it's really forward thinking. Yeah. Was so you seem like you were a mom guy cuz I'm a mom guy. I'm totally a mom guy. I you know, my parents got separated when I was 6 years old. Um my mom is everybody says this about their moms. It's sort of cliché, but my mom is literally the most kick-ass incredible human being I've ever met. She raised three boys who all somehow uh, ended up doing incredibly well for themselves. One of my brothers is a lawyer. My other brother is an incredible entrepreneur. And I'm sort of the black sheep of the family. <laughs> really? Uh, kind of, yeah. And uh, my brother always teased me because I, I did not do well in the early years of school. Like I, w I think I was the first second grader ever to pull straight Fs. And, uh, Strong. Yeah. <laughs> An F in drawing. <laughs> yeah. And he pulled me aside one day and he, his line, his classic line to me was, if you don't figure out what you want to do with your life, you're going to end up being the guy who puts pimentos and olives. And I'm like, I don't think that's a thing. I think they have machines that do yeah. that. And let's but not like, job shame. Yeah, and let's Jeffrey not Owens, job shame. Trader Joe's respect. Actually, by the way, my brother's name is Jeff. How excited are we for Jeffrey Owens, though, that like he's getting offered everything under the sun now? He must be, right? He is. I read about it today, and I was like, damn straight. It's going to be a, next season on Fox, just Jeffrey. The Jeffrey Show. It's got to be, right? Yes. God bless him. God bless him. He's incredible, and the way he's handled this entire, um, what I thought was a very shameful article, uh, and shaming article, was inspired. And there was a great story that I read about the fact that before he, he was told that the article was going to come out and he called up his son and started crying and just said, apologized for embarrassing him and his son was basically like, you absolutely could never embarrass me by, by doing what you do to support me and the family. Um, to just see the other side of that story now and to see that I think he's got like a 10 episode arc on Tyler Perry show and like a, a lot of other opportunities. 
it's really heartening. It's incredible that people come out and are like, you know what? We're going to lift up your spirits and you do deserve an, an opportunity. Um, so I thought that that was amazing to see. Do you think he'll face like that one coworker, Trader Joe's, who's kind of a hater, who's going to be like, oh, word? <laughs> Pro- probably. You, you too good for us, G? Probably. Like, there's also probably just a little bit of jealousy there. It's like, sure. But it's also like, you know, the American dream. If he can do it, I can do it too, even though like he was a really famous actor and like should still be. So I think that there probably is a little bit of that. Um, I, yeah, I just imagine his last day. I mean, does he? Have, that's a good question, right? So he must have some shifts on the books coming up at TJ's. Does he go back? They apparently told him you you will always have a job here, wow. which I'm sure is a little self serving too, because it's like now the most famous Trader Joe's in America, right? Um, but it's also awesome that like they're uh, part of the story. They're just fully embracing this man and saying. Thank you for everything that you've done, and we understand that there's another chapter in your life, but if you ever want to come back here, our doors are open. And thank you for not working at ShopRite. (laughs) Exactly. It's great publicity. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a part of you, and I think all people, you know, who've had any measure of success, it, it touches them in a visceral way of like, God, like, if... Any if if my life or my career had some tough turns, I yeah. could you know have to take an hourly job that was yeah. challenging. It, it, it's it, well, this story is a it's a it's a reminder um, of how fickle our industry is. You know, we're, we're, I remember reading an article when I first started out on Broadway doing a show called Twenty Fifth Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee in the New York Times. That was basically Broadway is a great job if you can afford it. Was essentially the. The principle of the article. And I remember when I, I, my expectations for what I would be once I got my first big break were very clear in my head, but in reality were very different. And living in New York City was like not an option. And so I would get on a public bus and basically do my show until about 10 o'clock at night and then have to go an hour away to Jersey. Uh, stay with a friend on their couch just because I I really couldn't afford the kind of rent that was needed. Um, And here I was a lead on Broadway and I was actually doing another job at the same time. I was coaching um, for schools, doing speech and debate. And it was really so crazy to me that like there is that sort of thing where you're, even when you're at the top and you're pursuing your dream and you think that you've you've achieved everything you needed, you, you wanted to do, there's a reality to it as well. Um, and so I think we're always one job away from not being relevant. And, you know, to me, it's all about saving and being smart and, and knowing that, you know, you can never be so arrogant to assume that you're, that won't happen to you, that you won't be relevant one day. Yeah. Um, and, and it's scary, but I, I guess it's, it applies to every job. It applies to everybody. Um, it, it, but but yeah, I, I always pinch myself that A, I get to do what I get to do. B, that I'm paid to do what I wanted to do growing up. And also that I, I haven't screwed up so badly yet to have that taken away from me, knowing that I've had a couple of close calls and will continue to. So there's the utmost gratitude to the the universe that I 
all of those things are things that that I hoped for and prayed for, wanted, but also the expectation that it doesn't always last forever. When you say close calls, you mean like you've said something that was misinterpreted or mm-mm, just mm-mm. career things? Just career things. Yeah. Like I, I, I really have had, I think like anybody has, uh, you know, choices that I've made that have paid off greatly, mm. choices that I've made that I regret. You I know? got those. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. You, you, you go, what, what a lot of people don't understand is we never go into a project thinking, oh, I can't wait to make something horrible or bad. Right? We have such great, <laughs> We like... have such great hopes for it all. Oh. And, and that's the thing is like you go in eyes wide open mm-hmm. because you believe in something. You believe that it's A, really funny. You believe, two, it could be artistically worthy of your time. Or C, you think that you're signing on to something that is bulletproof, that just feels like a hit, right? And then it doesn't. And then it just doesn't work for whatever reason. And a lot of times, you know, people are like, why would they choose to be a part of that? It just seems so clear. And what people don't realize is, is well, it wasn't clear. When, when you got the offer, when you got the script, there were, there were driving forces there that led to a very different path than where the the piece ended up. It's a weird alchemy and like lightning in a bottle when something yeah. actually is great. Yeah. And it's not only critically acclaimed, but then also successful like monetarily. Yeah. And you're so right because I always say this, like, you know, it used to be more of a thing when, when they shot on film, but producers, directors would go and watch dailies. And they would watch what you shot the day before and make sure that it looked good and and even for the worst movies ever, a producer has never walked out of dailies and gone, we're in fucking trouble. Right. Like, they've always, like, on fucking Geely, I can promise you, the producers walked out of that room and went, we got something special. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to yeah, be the Ben Affleck vehicle we've been looking for. You know what's funny is is doing, having done now um, quite a few animated projects, it's so interesting to see how the alchemy of those things works mm. compared to live action because there's a much healthier process whereby they can literally make the movie over and over and over again and tear it apart over and over and over again until they have a product worthy of an audience. And in features, in live action features, the the problem is really comes down to like, scheduling, availability. And once that ball is rolling, it's really hard to stop the train. Yeah, And, you know, more recently, there have been some high-profile firings and things like that, but none of that is healthy for a project either. And so what, what happens is, is unless you have a massive budget where you can afford to schedule reshoots ahead of time, you're sort of in it to win it at that point. And it, and it does, it does suck, but you're right. Like everybody goes in with the expectations that what we're doing is great Yeah. until it's not. And then everybody <laughs> wants to be like, oh, peace out. I'm, I, I can't be a part of this. Do you have any stories? Like I remember I worked on this little independent movie once in Cape Cod where the fucking, it was of course the, the life story of the director and God bless her, but she would like cry because it was like having post-traumatic stress about the events that had happened in her life that we were performing now and then three weeks in we had two weeks left and it's a night shoot on a Friday night and all of a sudden around 10 o'clock at night there's like this chatter that's coming over the set and people are going I hear hear we're getting shut down 
we're getting, we're out of money. We're out of money. We're getting shot tonight. And everyone's like, but this movie is so good. It's impossible. Never. Couldn't. And then about six more hours comes by. It's like, there's no second meal. We're getting fucking shut oh down. My God. And then by like sunrise, you see like all the producers and the director in a huddle. And then they address the crew. They're like, guys, we've run out of money. And we're going to have to shut down production and hopefully Ooh. we'll finish. Some, and we actually did finish um, in Van Nuys, California. <laughs> <laughs> and you haven't seen the movie for good. <laughs> wow. For good reason. That's, but. that's no, that particular thing has never happened to me. Right. Um, there have been very dysfunctional sets. Uh, there's a movie that I will not mention that was one of the worst experiences of my life. And I did it for the wrong reasons. I did it for a paycheck, and it was pretty early on in my career. And Which happens, right? Which happens. you got to pay the bills. Exactly. Um, I love that your coworker is now Googling what I've done <laughs> and what I could possibly have regretted this much. Um, and so, like... You're, you're sort of at the whim and mercy of a lot of fickleness. And why was it not? We don't have to get into detail, but why was it bad? Was it the? It was. It was an impossible um, situation. The 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 person overseeing the film, not the director, was uh, um, un, unhealthily volatile. Mm. Um, the and very hands on in a in a way that was not beneficial to the process. The director was a first-time director and was, I think, uh, probably a little in over his head and wanting to please the studio. And the movie itself just wasn't very good. Mm. Uh, the, the you know, And I think that a lot of those elements just really coalesced into something that was untenable. And But that that is also one of the great lessons and experiences, and I wouldn't trade it in for the world. And I actually had a, a lot of fun in the process. And I love the people I met during it, but it was one of those lessons that's an important lesson to learn, which is why are you doing this? And it actually was fundamentally the reason I ended up doing Book of Mormon, which changed my life, because I realized at that moment, is this what you want to do? Do you want to do you want to settle and take a job to take a paycheck and take a job to, you know, be in a movie or do you want to do something that? elevates you and elevates your craft and in of itself is worthy of attention mm. and is worthy of potential sacrifices, including financial sacrifices. And the answer after that was a resounding yes. But prior to that, I sort of had this ambition of, yeah, I want to be a rich actor and, you know, movie do, star. I want to be a movie star. Of and, and a lot of people were like, why are you going to do a show that isn't yet fully financed is sort of like really potentially um, a lightning rod in terms of controversy. And it was because I was like, I, I needed that. I needed the therapy that came from throwing myself into a situation that was so uncertain. And that you believed it. And that I believed Fundamentally. Hello, this is Dorothy from the Curious Promo Ad Department. We've got a quick little advertisement for you, and then we'll get right back to that kooky, crazy Josh Peck. Yo, guys, do you know what Mack Weldon is? Well, let me let me tell you. Their mission is simple, to make sure all your basics and beyond are smartly designed, and shopping for them is easy and convenient, because Mack Weldon was founded because they wanted more out of their basics and always questioned how something so essential could be such a pain in the butt to buy. 
Mack Weldon is a premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart design and premium fabrics, and it's going to be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you will ever wear. They even have like this silver underwear line and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial. And that word is not easy for me to say, but I'll tell you what is easy. Not stinking at the gym because my shirt is holding on to weird odors. Nope, not my Mack Weldon shirt. Sorry, odor. But it was seriously easy. I signed up. It took like a couple clicks at best. I told him my measurements that I have like weird, short, stumpy legs and a long torso. And they were like, Got you, bro. No problem. So listen, for 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com, enter promo code CURIOUS at checkout. That's 20% off your first order. Visit MacWeldon.com, enter promo code CURIOUS. Who are you? We know that somewhere in the world, someone downloaded this podcast, but we don't know anything about you. The people who support this show would love to know just a little bit about who is listening. If you have two minutes, it really does only take two minutes. Help us make the show an even better experience for you by telling us more about yourself. Just go to listenerq, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R-Q dot com slash curious and take the short survey. You can also give us direct feedback on the show, which we would love to hear. And as a thank you, you'll be entered into a drawing for a $100 Amazon gift certificate. Yeah. Two minutes. ListenerQ.com slash curious. That's ListenerQ.com slash curious. How is a show written by Matt and Trey not fully financed? Well, remember at the time there you know, a lot of people forget this, but like the first time I heard the music to Book of Mormon, oh my God, I remember being sent the album and I hear the first song, Hello, my name is Elder Price. And I was like, This is great. And I hear two by two, we go from door to door. And I'm like, This is brilliant. And then I hear Hasadiga Ibuan. <laughs> and I'm like, What does that mean? Literally, like the character of Elder Cunningham. And then I hear the follow up. Um, fuck you. And <laughs> I was immediately on the phone with my agent saying, I can't do this. And my agent was like, well, it's Trey Parker, Matt Stone. Of course you can. And I go, no, I can't. And they said, why? And I go, because I'll be shot probably if I do this. Right. On the street. And, on the street. <laughs> and I like played it for them and they're like, no, you cannot do this. Uh, and then I went and I did the first reading of it. And I white knuckled it during that song, and fucking Trey and Matt were onto something because I just started seeing shoulders shaking, and then this sound coming out of people's mouths that was just pure, unadulterated, holy shit laughter. And I never looked back. And that was a three-year process. That was a three-year journey from the first. Um, from the first workshop we ever did, first reading to the Broadway um, debut. Will you take us through, and when I say us, I mean me and the listeners. Yes. Take it, because I think that's You and your mom, basically, yeah. is what we're talking about right now. It may be nice if you said a little something to her, if you know she's listening. <laughs> Listen, hi, Mrs. Peck. <laughs> uh, this is the other Josh, not Groban. Fair. Uh, I learned the hard way today not to send you my West Side Story audition. <laughs> yes. Um, but I hope all is well. See you at Rosh Hashanah dinner. That's so nice. Well, <laughs> and that's two days away, so don't you make promises you can't keep. <laughs> um, so what does that look like? Because I, you know, I, I, um, 
I interviewed Wayne Brady a few weeks ago, and uh-huh. he was telling me about, you know, because he was so so close with Lin-Manuel and sort of the process of putting Hamilton on its feet, even though he wasn't, you know, the original Burr. What does that look like over those three years? Like, what are the touchstones of that process where you're seeing it sort of evolve and become the phenomenon? Fascinating, fascinating. I bet. Well, what people don't really know is that Book of Mormon, when it was first pitched to me, and we did the very first reading, they weren't they were leaning towards it being an animated movie, hmm. first of all. It was not meant for the stage. And in fact, at the very first reading we did, there was, there were these projected sketches of like animatics of what they were thinking of. And it was fascinating. And then uh, the incredible producer, Scott Rudin, was in the audience. And he had produced South Park movie Team America. He's with, the biggest dog m- in the a master, yeah. Yeah. And he um, he approached them after, and he spoke to their incredible producer, Anne Garfino, who produces South Park. And he said to her, "This has to be uh, this has to be a stage show." And I think she uh, agreed. And uh, the two of them, along with Trey and Matt and Bobby Lopez, who wrote the music, then sort of shifted their attention to, well, what would that look like? And so, over the course of the next three years, we would drop into New York for about two weeks stints, two or three weeks, and we would put it up on its feet for an audience. And the very first reading we ever did, it was literally one act, and there was no chorus to man up. It just literally ended up, the act ended with me going, man up, and that was it. And that was like the end of the show. And so like, they were trying to figure out, okay, what's the story we wanna tell? And the second workshop, we didn't get the second act until the day before we performed it for an audience. And I kept joking, are you going to give us a second act like as we're going on stage? Right. And they basically did. Um, and so from there, this structure of the piece really started to come together. And then for the next two years, we really – what was happening, what was apparent was that Cunningham – was overpowering the story. Mm. And not in a great way, but the the comedy of the character was so brash and so in your face and so um, it it was too funny for its own good in some ways the way they had written him that the price wasn't able to really shine through. And we, it was the the final workshop, uh, they brought me in to read with a couple of different guys and this young guy who I hadn't heard of, Andrew Rannells, walks in and he reads with me and it was the first time in my journey with the show that I had ever shit my pants because I was like, oh God, I'm I'm gonna have to work now. Right, and it was, upped your game. It upped my game and it was so, that's when the show clicked. That's when it really came to life. and. And, you know, I believe was written late into the process. But once that song was written, the show really just soared. It made sense. The, the theme finally came together. And when was that moment, that definitive, like, was it in previews? or Because, like, with Hamilton, they talk about, like, that last public theater performance. Yeah. Where they were like, yep, this is, when did it, where you're like, first, yeah. First preview. Very first preview. Um, I remember there was an article that had come out written by Michael Riedel, Riedel, um, and it was basically talking about how there were going to be protests on the street when the show opened, and the show was going to close fairly quickly, 
and essentially it was going to be a big story for all the wrong reasons because of the controversy that it was going to cause. And I, so that I bought into that. I was like, shit, I'm going to start looking for my next job now. And that first preview happened and the audience was electric. And then it was actually the next day when I got back to the theater, I saw a mob of people waiting outside the theater. And I was like, what's this about? Yeah. And it, I walk in and I'm like, why are there like 400 people outside the theater? And they said, well, they're here for lottery tickets. I said, what? He goes, well, we're, we're selling out pretty quickly now. And then I got back the next day and there were a thousand people outside. Oh, shit. And then all of a sudden it became in the blink of an eye, an event. And it just hit us so quickly. And from there, it just became a tidal wave. Like there was no stopping this thing that up until that point, really the only other example of that was a producer's until, of course, Hamilton. Yeah. So it was like this, you know, this once in a decade sort of thing that just transcends every expectation uh, for, for, you know, as an event. Uh, you have Wicked, you have Producers, you have Hamilton, you have Book of Mormon. Those are very special moments in the history of theater where you just it, – it was so unexpected for us and, or at least for me. And when it happened, there was no turning back. And how long does that stick where you – because we're all working towards that moment of like where it all – comes together and mm -hmm. has this like beautiful fusion. How long do you live in that? And then when does it just become like, man, eight shows a week is a lot. Six months. Yeah. Six months in, I realized it was a job. A year in, I realized that it was work. And a year and a half in, I realized that it was time. Yeah. And that's when I was like, you know what? I'm doing a disservice to the audience by staying in the show because... I can't, and the only reason I stayed past a year was because Andrew was staying, the cast was still pretty much all intact, and I didn't want to be the first guy to leave. And I sort of wanted to leave alongside Andrew. I thought that that was the right journey. Um, but I probably should have left because I was bitter the last six months or five months. I was like, oh, God, I, I can't do this anymore. And are you maintaining, like, are you protecting your voice every that day? That was it. I mean, yeah. my, my, my amazing uh, vocal teacher at the time, she said to me, the hardest job about doing a Broadway show is staying healthy and well enough to do it. And I sort of took it for granted. And I was getting so beat up. I was, I was constantly getting sick. I would get sinus infections. The weather, having a newborn baby. Good luck, Josh. Thank you. you. Get, get ready. Rough. Um, having basically occupying a theater that was moldy and dusty and old. Those things are not really conducive to good health. Um, yes. And so it took a toll. Uh, and on top of that, you know, having to go literally work on my voice every day to have a voice to do the show was its own exercise in, you know, it was just, it was, it was all a lot. It was all a lot. Not to say it wasn't worth it. And the end justified the means, but it was hard. It was hard. Six months in, do you guys start fucking with each other within the show just to keep it exciting one day in one day in. oh man like that was part of it is i literally 
I couldn't leave in part because I was having too much fucking fun on the stage doing my own show that wasn't being seen by the audience. And that was fun. And that cast and I, to this day, have a brotherhood and sisterhood that is, I, I can't imagine it ever being topped in terms of, you know, relationships that develop from from a communal creative experience. And so um, it was so fun. Oh, yeah. It was so fun. And we would just constantly set out to make each other laugh. Did you ever hear over the years, have you heard, have like Mormons come up to you and been like, that's not really how it goes? Like, have you ever talked face to face with a Mormon about the depiction? Do you know what's funny is <laughs> I, I, I've never been like accosted by a Mormon, but I've actually the opposite has happened to me where people have come up to me who said to me, I saw your show and it made me convert to the Mormon church. Wow. And I was like, I think you may have missed the message. <laughs> they were like, this but I was like, were great. Catchy. I was like, great. But at the same time, they did get the message. I mean, the message really is, it's a, it's kind of a very pro-faith show. That's the irony of the show. Yeah. Is like, even though it sets it out as like, it's crazy that we believe in the things that we believe sometimes, believing in of itself is worthy of the endeavor, right? Like that idea of I believe that gives you or a lot of us what we need in order to deliver on that message in a great way. And I think the spirituality the, is part of part of that is what's made this show connect now for close to a decade. Is it just it, people leave with this uplifting message, even though the journey to get there is crazy. Bugged out. It's bugged out. Uh, I, but it is. And f by the way, Mormon church has brilliantly, brilliantly exploited the opportunity that was our show. Oh, yeah. There's a giant page in our program promoting the LDS. Really? And, oh, yeah, since oh, the beginning. Which I was Saints like, that's brilliant. brilliant. Like, it's brilliant. Fuck yes. This if, is genius. If there was a book of Scientology, there's no way that they, <laughs> they would be advertising. No. no. They take themselves too seriously. And part of the reason that I think Trey and Matt knew that the only religion that they could do this with, even though it's an expose on religion itself and not just Mormons, is because the Mormons are so unbelievably generous. They're so unbelievably kind and so unbelievably uh, passionate, but also joyful in many ways. And so it really, they were able to laugh at it, I yeah. think, in a, in a really wonderful way. Do you think, so I, I have a story and I'm not sure if it's true, so please strike it down if it isn't. Mm -hmm. I had heard, and I don't know if it was with the original cast or with one of the touring casts of Book of Mormon that Matt and Trey came and, you know, usually, you know, Lin-Manuel, after he left Hamilton, probably didn't go to see a lot of the performances because, you know, these people become very busy. Mm -hmm. And that they went to go see a performance uh, of Book of Mormon. And, you know, it had gotten into this rhythm, as anything does, where people start adding a little, a little bit, a little oomph to jokes, to things, their own interpretation of it. Because right. you've done it now eight shows a week for months on end. And I heard that Matt and Trey were so specific that they sat the cast down and said, stop it. Like, whatever this little extras things that you're doing yeah. that's getting a laugh 
it's taking away, like, by you getting a laugh at beat two, you're fucking up the payoff at beat ten. I think I've heard that, sir. That did not happen with our cast, but I'm surprised it didn't because we were definitely towards the end um, in Looney Land. But it was, um, I, it's a product of, one, overstaying your welcome and keeping it fresh. Mm. Two, it's a game of telephone. By the time you get to the tenth cast, you know, most of them haven't even seen the original cast. So they're sort of doing copying, copying. It's like the tenth photograph of something. And so I, I understand that. And I actually think it's incredible that Trey and Matt, Anne and Casey, the director, are all still so invested in the in the process that they even have the time and you should not have given me this LaCroix because all I'm doing is burping. It's um, a very Jewish thing. Yeah. We're, we're gassy folk. Oh, God. I'm just like every other word. The people um, are loving it. Good. Yeah, we're hearing it on Twitter now. This is okay. streaming, by the way. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first. Did you see Elon Musk getting interviewed wow. by Joe Rogan? That, whoa. Yeah, that, I watched wow. that last night. Somebody tweeted, and <laughs> it was so funny, that... It's um, leave it to Elon Musk to come up with the most creative way to have a midlife crisis, <laughs> yes. a public midlife crisis. I love Elon Musk. I really, really, really am like bummed out uh, how much Tesla and Elon are being attacked on a daily basis because I can't emphasize enough that the work he's doing is so important. I think not only from a business standpoint, but just like – He's one of the only people who's trying to financially make it feasible to save the earth. Yeah. Um, and I think that like everybody shitting on that is problematic. I know he's not particularly helping his cause though. And it, and it sucks because like we need the Elon Musks of the world. We need the guys who aren't just thinking big coal. We need the guys who are like, uh, let's stop living in the past and deal with the future, which is we have a – really dangerous thing happening to the environment right now and we need to fight it. And by the way, there's a way to make money off that. Yeah. Um, so it kind of sucks. And I heard today like the CFO left and it's a mess. I don't – but why? Cause he's, first of all, he didn't even hail the weed, which I take issue with. Right. Because it was a shitty puff <laughs> yeah. at best. It was like a dad who's just learning how to smoke. Yeah. I thought it was very like odd. And also I feel like that was like a moment where – he should have been like congratulated for just making Joe Rogan feel comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I don't, I, I, that's the thing is like, I don't have a problem with him smoking weed and doing that. And like, I thought it was actually really fun. And the fact that it's legal here means that it's perfectly fine for him to do. So well, I didn't really take issue with it. I think the thing that is happening is it's, it's playing on a bigger theme of every week Elon Musk is in the news for the wrong thing. Sure. And I think that like people are like, what's going on over there? But um, but we've seen it in our business. It's funny. I was talking to Dan Fogelman yesterday mm -hmm. and, you know, it, and I was talking about the leap from brilliant creator, executive producer, writer to showrunner because right. it's a very different job. You're yeah. going from being a pure artist to a manager of humans. And inevitably, on a TV show with 100-plus crew, it's managing an army. And specifically for him, like, I feel like it's rare that someone who's that brilliant and good at the engineering and design aspects can then go run a billion-dollar public company without some sort of blemish on the record. So I'm not 
he's just not the guy to do that. Like, I'm like, let him, can we please just put him in a lab with all the, you know, fruit roll up that he needs? Yeah, (laughs) I think you're right. I think that there's, um, because uh, by all accounts, Tesla's still being run like a startup company, like the actual day to day of it. And I do think that he needs to just be the innovator and allow somebody else to do the day-to-day stuff. Like because, a Sheryl Sandberg. Well, yeah, because clearly it's taking a toll on him. And, like, we need him. We, we, you know, we need him healthy. We need him. I remember, like, Ariana Huffington wrote that tweet, which was basically, we need you to stay healthy yeah. for, like, humanity. And And I agree with that sentiment. Like, get the support because you're a genius. You are a legend. Like... You are Steve Jobs incarnate right now. We need that innovation. Um, so I I really hope it it all works out. Now I feel like obviously you you know spent time in the Daily Show and then your show sixteen hundred pen like you've always had an affinity for government and politics and what have you. So how involved are you in? How do you walk that line? Because I feel like you, you're vocal at times mm-hmm. and then not. What, is it, what does that look like for you, especially in current times? Look, I, I think to each their own. I think that these are unprecedented times that we're in. My grandparents, having lived through uh, one of the darkest periods in history uh, in 1940s Germany, 1930s and 40s Germany, um, have taught me lessons that are very valuable to me about what it means to live in a culture that starts to look at others and point fingers at them, what it lives, looks to live uh, in a society that um, is, is looking for scapegoats, that is turning towards authoritarianism or um, or nationalism in some cases and definitely populism and also potentially fascism. And I think that when you have those toxic ingredients in the air, I think it's incumbent on anybody with a voice to stand up. Um, And I certainly can't look at my daughters uh, 10 years from now and say I did nothing if shit goes south. And so, you know, I I do. I, I use my voice. I use my platform sometimes to uh, great at great cost. In um, what ways? You know, I don't. I don't like. I don't like putting myself out there in a way that makes me vulnerable to confrontation. I'm not looking for confrontation. And it's unavoidable. It's unavoidable. I'm looking for reason. I'm looking for discourse. Uh, discourse is is slowly and quickly at the same time coming to an end. Mm. And you know, when we're no longer debating policy, but we're debating whether or not any of this is normal, that's a problem. Um, when we're debating science without being experts in science, that's a problem. Uh, social media is wo- a wonderful tool, but it's also made all of us armchair experts, myself included. I think that that's a dangerous paradigm. I think that we're fact is dying because we are dealing with these tools that make everything uh, available to us at lightning speed, giving us the ability to comment on it with the same authority that we're receiving it. And I think that that, those things make it so that I feel like I have no choice but to do my part. And that isn't limited to just the, you know, tweeting a couple of 
times a week. It's going out and doing the work. It's making sure that I'm doing my part to not only financially support those that I think are going to be the check and balance that our constitution calls for, but also, you know, joining the millions and millions of others who are saying something's not right here and standing up and making sure that our voices are heard. And I think you're so right too with, in addition to these phones, it curates and delivers information that only pertains to what we want to see or that we've told the AI that we are partial to. So people are only getting this sort of slew of one-sided information from whatever, you know, news source or blog or, you know, alarmist sort of aggregate of information that they, that, that sort of coincides with their beliefs. And I remember being very um, shocked when on election night in 2016, I'd had this great photo of me and Hillary Clinton and Wilmer Valderrama. You want to talk about a trifecta, (laughs) (laughs) a power trio um, from months before at a fundraiser for her. And, you know, I try to be, I'm, I'm not overly political on social media by any means, but I, it felt I w- it was incumbent on me to post something. So I posted this photo and I basically just said, um, whatever you believe in, I think we can all agree that Wilmer Valderrama is a very handsome man. Hashtag I'm with her. And my audience on social media tends to be under 28, um, majority female, but young. And it looked like a it, it looked like a Fox News meetup right. in my comment section. Right. Like lock her up, fuck this, unfollowed. And these are like sixteen. This is not the screams of dinosaurs. It's sixteen year olds. Yeah. And I was so like I was like uh oh, like if they're saying yeah. something like this, yeah. it's 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 become it's become toxic. And I think that unfortunately there's a lot of tribalism happening right now i think that unfortunately there's a lot of echo chamber stuff happening right now and i think that it's um it's incredibly successful what the current administration and its advocates are doing because they are mudding the waters in such a way that it's becoming impossible to actually know what the hell is is really happening anymore and to all of the people out there who who just know slogans but don't actually read beyond headlines, um, none of this is normal. For those of us who have lived long enough to see uh, history play out over the course of multiple decades, this is unprecedented. This is not the way things are supposed to be going. And regardless of your political or social beliefs, there's a method to the madness. And when the inmates start to run the asylum, that's when democracy fails. And that's when the Republic has its lights turned out on it. And that happens fairly quickly once it's in motion. And that's not to scare people. It's to inspire people to do the one thing that it's going to take to change that, which is to just hold the people in power accountable. And that's up to each of us who have the ability to vote, which means all of us. Right. And I think that, you know, it sometimes people say, and not to go on a political tirade here because nobody wants to hear that from me. But, oh, they do. But not, not to say that it's, you know, a lot of people seem to think that their vote doesn't matter. And I think as we're seeing right now, elections matter. Because when you don't vote, 
you are creating an environment by which your unalienable rights can be taken away from you, whether that has to do with a woman's body or whether that has to do with your right to clean air. Those are things that we should all sort of have. Um, and there's a very real chance that those things are going to start to be stripped away. And so before that can happen, I would say take 30 minutes out of your day on November 6th and go and vote. Wow. Yo, what's up, guys? We got another ad for you. It's very exciting. These things happen. I know, right? Great. Let's get into it. Um, Did you know that one of the most important things we do for our health every day is brushing our teeth? Yet most of us don't do it properly. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, Josh, what are you talking about? I've been brushing my teeth since I was like nine. I know how to do it. And my answer to that would be, why did you only start at nine? And also listen on. Quip is a better electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers. Okay? Quip was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. All right, it's got a built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides, helping guide a full and even clean. Plus, it's got brush heads that are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks. And let me tell you something, I'm not, I'm not that guy. You know what I mean? Like, I don't like to go to you know, Target or wherever and pick up essentials. I'm always out of toilet paper or dish soap or etc. So the mere fact of knowing that I got beautiful, fresh brush heads arriving at my home exactly when I need them, just wait off the shoulders. Now, listen, I love Quip, and that's why they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash curious right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash curious. You know who's talking about voting today? You and President Obama. That's what inspired me. I Get heard out. him. Vote. Get out and vote. Do it, folks. That's all you got to do. You know, he mentioned my name once in a speech. Did he? Ish. Kind of. He didn't say Josh Kikadin. <laughs> no, he didn't say Josh Groban. Okay. I love that Josh Groban. <laughs> <laughs> I got a call and he's like, he was doing some speech and he goes, I know what the kids like. They like iCarly. Uh, Josh and Drake. I was like, Oh my God. And it's Drake and Josh, Josh. But they, he fucking put my name first. And I was like, oh, I It's about you. time. I was like, That has a better it's ring about, to it. And I've always it's felt It's about that time. Way. Although he thought it was a show with you and the Canadian singer Drake. Uh, and that he was like, This is, this sounds like a great show. If this is you pitching me a spinoff, I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Aubrey, Drake. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> I would actually, I would, I would pay good money to see that. By the way, oh man, well, anything Degrassi related, I'm in, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've worked with some incredible people. What do you look for in a director? What's your, what, what do you, yeah, what is the thing that you're most interested in as an actor when you're sort of sussing out the relationship with a director? Uh, you know, I think. These days, it's looking for a challenge, not only for myself, but a way to challenge my audience, uh, a way to sort of keep them on their toes. Um, I think that, you know, it, it, I'm always looking for an opportunity to 
to do something I haven't done before, to showcase something I haven't showcased before, to challenge myself to do something that terrifies me. Um, so with projects like Murder on the Orient Express or Marshall, um, you know, there's a, an element of that that is me wanting to play outside uh, my proverbial wheelhouse. Mm. But is doing something like Murder on the Orient Express where you're – that's a lot of star power you're yeah. surrounded by. Yeah. Are you comfortable in that energy or are you just like, let me just do my job, not humiliate myself and get the fuck out of oh, here? Oh, man. I, I'm I'm inspired by it. Like it's, it's a master class. Yeah. You learn so much by being surrounded by people who are infinitely better than you at what they do. And that's how you get better. Uh, and so like – Rather than work with people who make you feel safe and make you feel comfortable, I think it's really important to be terrified occasionally, to feel like, oh, God, what am I doing here? I don't belong here. And that was definitely one of those experiences where whether I'm acting opposite Kenneth Branagh or Judy Den Dame Judy Dench or Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp or Michelle Pfeiffer, whoever's in that cast, it was like, okay, you better come to play ball. Does... I was listening to Bradley Whitford uh, interview the other day and he's like three things go through my mind immediately when a director has a note for me and it's fuck you. I suck. Okay. What? <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. and Beyond accurate. Yes. I think that that's genius way of, of thinking about it. And just as an aside, as a fanboy, is just Johnny Depp cool? No, like he just oh, seems he's so, at a resting he's cool. So unbelievably cool. I mean, like I grew up, and I know he's had, you know, the 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 issues along the way with public perception and things that have happened, and it's it sucks. Um, but my experience with him was wonderful. Yeah, uh, you know, it was limited, but does I, he eat? He does. And, really? And yeah, and and. He was just so giving as an artist. Mm. Uh, and again, I can just speak to him as a scene partner. But I really loved working with him in every way, shape, and form. And, and you know, growing up such a fanboy, whether it was Edward Scissorhands um, or in particular Ed Wood, which I think is one of the great performances oh, man. Um, he's ever given, if not the greatest, um, I just really admire his journey uh, and going from basically being like there's a time that a lot of younger people don't remember before he was Jack Sparrow that he was literally just an art house guy and like doing really crazy cool work that was yeah. so unbelievably charged and brilliant. Jim Jarmish, yeah. Dead Man, what was it? Um, the, one of those I, Jim yes, Jarmish ones. Yes, and I kind of remember that. What, so what's your... It's a two-part question of what's your process when you're approaching a role and sort of how did you cultivate that process or, the, or your method, the way into a, a character? So there's two process, processes, um, external and internal, and it just depends on the role. Um, and part of that is habitual, a part of that is is sort of internal, and a part of that is education. It's I went four years to... Uh, Carnegie Mellon University. I studied at National Institute of Dramatic Arts in in Australia. So it's taking those skills that I literally, you know, spent time and a lot of money on to learn, and utilizing the pieces from each of them that apply to any given role. So, for instance, something like Olaf, 
is going to come from a very sort of uh, external playful place, uh, i.e., I'm not going to sit there and, and sort of mark my beats and do my thing. I'm going to play. I'm going to explore. I'm going to discover. So when the directors first said to me, they gave me sort of adjectives to describe the character, um, this naive, innocent, um, childlike. And when I sort of took a second to explore those things, suddenly this kind of smile came on my face and I started to talk a little bit different. And it was sort of like, a, wow, the wonderment of the world. Oh my God. And it sort of became like this wide-eyed child. With something like Marshall, for instance, it's much more methodical. It's much more internal. Uh, and it's much more about dissecting sort of the entire story the backstory and really creating a, a, a journey for this guy that doesn't exist on the page that exists off the page as well. So it, it just depends on the role. And are you at a place yet where like there are, I feel like I interviewed Vincent D'Onofrio and mm -hmm. I so look up to He's him. He's incredible. Unreal. And he kind of said, not in a, in a braggadocious way. It, he just said, I do, I know what, is required as far as the work goes for a part. And as long as I've accomplished that, there really are no bad days. He's right. like, if I've done my work, what I'm required to do to get in, he's like, for better or for worse, I know that it will be either good or pretty good or great, and it'll live somewhere around there. And so have you gotten to that spot where, like, you're not driving home wringing your hands going, like, if they fucking put take four in the movie, I'm going to die. <laughs> No, I wish I had Vincent D'Onofrio's <laughs> uh, uh, healthy ego. I, I really always question my work. I find it impossibly difficult to watch myself on screen. Right? I find it very, very hard to leave work at the end of the day and not question if something I could have done could have been better. There wasn't a day... Uh, out of the more than 365 days that I performed in Book of Mormon that I didn't question whether or not I could have gotten a laugh in a certain place I didn't or I could have made something of a moment I didn't. It, it, to me, it's what makes me constantly strive to be better and in a way that, that that's a, a necessary and healthy attitude for me to have. So I'm always insecure. I'm always questioning whether or not I'm good enough. Uh, yeah, well, welcome. Is that just Judaism? It may be. It may just be a Josh thing. We yeah. should call Hart it up. <laughs> yeah. And the others. Let's see what Hart's is dealing with. Yeah. God, Josh Hartnett. What's that like being him? It's probably awesome. I think it's Penny. Dreadful. Yeah. Well done. Thank you. Well done, sir. Thank you. Um, any bad audition stories? Oh, any, like, God. Oh, give me, give me it. Well, one of my first, I mean, one of like my, my most important auditions ever was my number one choice for schools was to go to Juilliard. Uh, and, Heard of it. Uh, yes. And one of their um, number one choices was for me not to go to Juilliard. <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, and Douchebag. I, I actually just posted my rejection letter from them, which I found uh, after I visited home. But I go there 
<clears throat> and they have us do all sorts of weird stuff, like be an animal, but then make the animal into a man. And I'm like, that's like, part of the audition. That's, that was part of the audition. Fuck off. Yeah. And no. like the animal had to be in a bathtub at one point. And I'm like, show me where the bathtub is. And they're like, no, you got to pretend to be in a bathtub. And I'm like, when will this ever be useful <laughs> yes. in anything that I do? <laughs> will I have a scene where I'm faking a bathtub? They're like, he doesn't get it. He just doesn't get He's it. Juilliard material. Yes. He doesn't belong here. Um, so I get in and I had two monologues prepared, my, my contemporary and my classical. And I do my contemporary, which was Marty by Patty Chayefsky. And I am certain that I killed it. I was like, yeah, beat that. And they all looked at me and said, okay, and do you have anything else? No. And I was like. Well, yeah, because you told me to prepare two things, so I do have something else. And just like the deflation of just no response was probably like part of the, like that's what they probably do with everybody. Mm. Um, like an SNL audition. Yeah, they like, pro they, like they're just told we're not going to respond, see how they react. But I was not prepared for that. So I start my Shakespeare, which was from Henry VI, and I do the first two lines. And I literally completely blank on the rest of it. So instead of stopping, I decide in front of a man named Michael Kahn who runs a program who also runs the uh, DC Sh William Shakespeare Festival. Um, I think it was a DC Shakespeare Festival. He, I started improving Shakespeare in the front of him. Greatest writing ever. Yes. Yeah. Uh, just thinking maybe I can get away with it. Maybe I can figure out rhyme scheme. Uh, iambic pentameter iambic in the pentameter. moment. Like the only person who could feasibly have gotten away with that was Lin-Manuel Miranda. Sure. And like, I'm not Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, can we get just like a taste, like a single sentence? No, because I probably will cry. Oh, what? Yeah. Fourth, I. Yeah. The... It was just like putting like really... Really, really big words together. Hither. Hither. There to four. Yikes. Uh, quattro. Just <laughs> using different languages. Um, yo soy necesito bil baño, por favor. Is he doing seventh grade Spanish? This, this just doesn't feel like Shakespeare. I don't think Shakespeare, did he use Spanish? Yeah. Um, so it was a disaster. Um, uh, I've also had auditions where I, again, was like, Nailed it. There was one in particular where um, I was – it was one of my first big auditions and I, I was doing Spelling Bee, my first big show. And this small movie called Avatar was happening and mm. um, I did an audition on tape. James Cameron um, responded to it and flew me to LA to come to Lightstorm to personally read with him. Wow. And film me, and so I get there, and he's got this massive camera, this like IMAX style camera. He so, would for an, audition, for an audition. What are you trying to prove, James? And I was like, wow, get out of here, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Jim. Uh, and so I start doing it. I still remember the dialogue. Uh, it was I was supposed to play Sam Worthington's best friend, and he was like a Navi interpreter. And so I had to study with like the guy who created the Klingon language, and it was Auve ult aria yohengehi now malir toksivi. Like it was this was the dialogue. Beautiful. And so and I still nail it to this yeah. day. And so I'm doing this, and I'm in it, and I'm feeling great. And Jim looks at me, and he goes, "This is just." This is exactly what I'm looking for. This is amazing. This is terrific. 
And when you actually do it, you're going to be amazing because you come from theater. You're so imaginative. And so much of what you have to do, you have to picture, you have to see. So I leave and I'm like, I got this role. I'm an avatar. I'm an avatar. And I got a call from my agent saying they loved you. It's between you and this other guy. Uh, and I'm like, who's the other guy? And I looked him up and he was tall and lanky and completely different. And I get a call <laughs> about a week later and they say to me, um, so they're going to go with the other guy. Fuck. And I was like, ah, oh, damn it. And then it occurred to me as I was sitting there thinking about it, and then subsequently when I saw the film, that James Cameron took my audition and put it in like the, the computer that makes everybody into an avatar and was like, I can't have a fat Smurf in my movie. Like this will <laughs> literally, this will be disastrous. No. I'm just convinced. And so I told this story on Jimmy Fallon. And I got a call one day from my agent who told me that the casting director heard it and basically was laughing, saying that that's exactly what happened. Really? <laughs> yes. It was just like, oh, wow. He makes a really uncomfortable looking Navi. Not in this day and age. No. That would not be acceptable nope. I at would, all. I would sue them. Body shamed. Yep. How dare they? I know. You don't deserve Josh, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, you do, Jim. Please call me. I'm still available for the sequels. I know you're doing about four more, so I'm, I'm in. As am I. But damn it, Jim. <laughs> that didn't feel fair. Actually, you should be my body double for them. I'll just do the voice. <laughs> Perfect. <Yeah>. <laughs> Josh <laughs> and Josh together again. The dream, first of all. Yeah. Um, okay, so last two questions. Family. You have kids. I have one on the way. Mm -hmm. Is it everything that people say? Is it all the things that it's cracked up to me? Give me the goods. It is everything. All the cliches are true. For, let's get that out of the way. Yeah. The first three to six months are a fucking nightmare and nobody can prepare you for it. Like the sleep deprivation that you will endure is so unbelievably unfair and painful and it's good that like you can't physically have another baby for another nine months at the very least because it allows you to forget how awful the experience was of those first few months. But it is worth the pain and torture because at, on the other side of it, there really is nothing that I value more in my life than my two daughters. I, I, they are my everything. They give me such a joy that makes my heart explode when I get home, when I see them, when they wake up, their kisses, their love. That'll all probably change. There will come a point when both of my girls become teenagers and they despise me and I'm not looking forward to that and I'm sort of bracing myself for it. But right now, ugh, the greatest thing in the world. But here's the good part. At that age, Dad'll be powerful, big Hollywood guy, and you can be like, listen, girls, if you want to meet Sean Mendez, be right. nice to old dad, maybe I'll pull a favor, get Sean to perform at your birthday yeah, party. Perform. Although they'll be like, who's Sean Mendez at that point? Because yeah. they'll be listening to whoever the younger Sean Mendez is. 2030. And we'll be like, Sean, Sean Mendez will be like Bono for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It'll be really weird, right? Weird. Like, he'll just like go into that like evolution of like older, older heartthrob. Yeah. He's unfairly talented. How do you get on that subject? Talented. You know what? I'm. Did you combat this when your wife was pregnant with your first? And I'm dealing with this now, where I'll have friends who have kids, and they're all give me this look. Oh, 
Oh, you're in for it. You're in for it, yeah. And I want to be like, fuck you. Don't scare me. And B, I want to say, I'm like, if you can do it, I can do it. Because you're a knucklehead. <laughs> like, you work at UPS. Like, no shame on UPS. But I'm like, trust me, I can fucking do this. It's Look, it is it, It's hard for sure. It, it's not easy. But it also, there's a reason that it, it just keeps happening over and over again in history right. that we keep having babies because you fall into it. The first day that I remember putting my child in a car seat, I literally thought that I was going to be the thing that killed her. Yeah. Like I was so terrified of like not doing this right or not doing that right. Or, you know, you have to wrap them like a burrito. Swaddle. Yeah, you have to swaddle them. And oh, you've you've done the classes, you've done the work. I'm learning. Good. I know or a like, couple of or when you Or when you do the CPS, the CPS, the CPR class. Yeah. And you're like, you're so terrified that you're going to kill this little plastic baby that they give you. And so like you want the, the instructor to come and just watch your hands and nobody else's to make sure you do it like five times and record yourself on an iPhone as if like if something's actually happening, you're going to be like, wait right there, baby. Let me open my iPhone right. and take a look at the like, video of me saving material. the plastic baby. <laughs> so like you go through all of that. My assistant actually looked at my phone the other day and she started laughing that I had poison control on my favorites. But I would recommend to every parent, put poison control on your favorites. <laughs> yes. Because there was a day that my baby put something in her mouth and I almost had a heart attack being a hypochondriac. And I like just Googling poison control takes time. Sure. So you're like, no. Like it's either nine one one or poison control. Ready to go. And I don't want the cops come and take my baby away. <laughs> like, right. I want to, I need poison control. So you know, it's all those little things, but at the end of the day, you fall into it really quick. Well, I'm excited. Okay, final question. This is something new that I've started doing with every guest on the show. And I will not take off my clothes. All right. Well, we can talk about that off mic. <laughs> but what are the two or three or one or five Josh Gad commandments that things – um, that are truths for you that you would want to give someone that you would want to impress upon people, things that you found to be um, incredibly important for yourself? Those are great questions. Amblin movies should be the foundation of everybody's um, cinematic journey. Solid. Okay. Um, that includes Back to the Future. That includes Indiana Jones. That also includes Amblin-esque movies like... Uh, Ghostbusters, um, but that would be the the first step when you're when you're starting your film journey. Start with those movies. Uh, number four, I guess, would be to really, really, really be true to yourself. And by being true to yourself, it means know your own self worth and don't take shit from people um, that are trying to for their own through their own insecurities make you feel less than. And that that comes in handy, especially in a field like ours where you have to constantly deal with rejection, right? So it's about understanding what you're worth and making sure that you you constantly keep that true north on your compass, on your moral compass. Uh, number three, I think for me, would be to understand your priorities in life and to make sure that the choices that you make are also staying true to 
what's most important to you at, at that time. And, and, and a lot of times for all of us, I don't think it's, it's true just for what we do. I think it's true in any profession. There's a balance that uh, Americans in particular seem to have a hard time with when it comes to committing so much as we do to work. And it's about balancing those moments with your family, especially if you have kids, because damn, I'm witnessing it. They grow up fast. And so knowing that what that balance is worth. Two, I think would be to understand that you share this world with others. And a lot of times, especially with the advent of the, this sort of new informational age, technolo- the technology feat that we've experienced, we're always looking down instead of up. We're constantly in our own world. I remember Patrick Wilson coming to speak to us at Carnegie Mellon. This was back when I was in college. And he said, you know, when I'm in New York City, I notice that that nobody ever looks up at all the beauty around them. They're always looking down in an ornery or angry mood. And it really opened up my eyes to something that has proven truly valuable, which is there's always somebody around you. I make it I make it a necessity in my life to just hold the door open for somebody, no matter who that person is, in the hope that they will do the same for the next person. Um, and a lot of times it's easy to forget that. And then the number one thing that I would say is have values. Stand for something. Our time here is so limited that if it's just really about making money or it's about your own personal sort of journey, you have to ask yourself what you're leaving behind, not only for yourself, but what you're leaving behind as yourself. What is your legacy? What is that thing that you want people to remember you for? And make every day count by virtue of that. Know that there's, especially living through history, which we are all doing right now, which seems like a burden, but in some cases I think is a, is a great honor. We get to be the difference makers. We get to do the things that are going to potentially move the needle, potentially change the world uh, as a communal experience. So I would say that that is probably my, my greatest uh, paradigm for myself, my greatest rule. And those are the five wow. edicts, I guess, for Josh. Mic yeah. drop, Josh Gann. God bless you. Thank you. Wow. God bless you. God bless us. And shame on your mother once she, again. Thanks a lot, Barbara. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not calling listen, her mom anymore. Listen, Barbara. <laughs> Babs. Babs. <laughs> having sat here for the past hour with your son, there's nobody else who can play Maria. And I'll tell you right now. <laughs> My mom? I'll tell you right now <laughs> that I'm going to call Steven Spielberg and tell him yeah. that Josh Peck is his Maria. <sighs> Thank you so much. I just met a Josh named Maria. Wow. How about that? Enjoy. Drink that in, podcast (laughs) listeners. You're fucking welcome. Thank you, dude. Thank you, brother. This is the best. That was it. That's Josh Gad. You just listened to it. Guys, have an incredible week. Take care of yourself and others. I believe in you. I'm proud of you. And fuck the rest. You know what I mean? Give the shitty committee a rest for a second. Get off your own back and be okay with that you're exactly where you should be right now in this moment. And it might not be, you know, 
in the heights of heights that your mind tells you you need to be achieving or with that perfect person or in that perfect job or have amassed all that wealth and security that you think you need to feel okay because you're just okay right in this moment. Wow. Yup. Enjoy that. You know, take a sip because it goes down smooth. (laughs) Oh my God. All right, guys, have a great week. Thank you for listening to the pod. Bye.